Oh, wait a minute. Okay, go ahead. Mem, which means or has implications of water, uh, chaos, mighty, and blood. Oh, how I love your law. I meditate on it all day long. Your commands make me wiser than my enemies, for they are ever with me. I have more insight than all my teachers, for I meditate on your statutes. I have more understanding than the elders, they your precepts. I have kept my feet from every evil path, that I might obey your word. I have departed from your laws, for you yourself have taught me. How sweet are your words to my taste, sweeter than honey to my mouth. I gain understanding from your precepts, therefore I hate every path. Okay, uh, thank you. Uh, we started a minute late today. Sorry about that. Uh, uh, I forgot to turn on the computer when it was time to turn on the live stream. So I had to turn on the computer. And when I turned on the computer, I pushed the button for Bible study before it had a chance to set. And so I had to turn the computer back off. So that was my fault. Anyway, uh, it, things are working now. And Sergio says we're live. So we're good to go there. Um, we got a couple prayer requests. Um, we've been praying for him. Carrie, uh, he uh, died. I guess it was yesterday I got the email, and that means that we need to remember Jean, his wife, in prayer, because she's now without her husband for the first time in eons, and uh, my heart goes out to her. And uh, then um, someone emailed me today and said they need a good church around Columbus, Georgia. So if anybody knows of a good church around Columbus, Georgia, please email me. They attend or they are stationed at, I think it's, uh, well, there's a base right there and they're stationed at it. I forgot the name of the base. But anyway, um, if you uh, know of something around that area, please let me know and I'll bring it up again Sunday if I don't hear from anybody. But they, uh, they do attend online here with the church, but they'd like to have their own church to attend. And they, they've gone to some and they've found nothing that uh, meets their needs. And then um, we want to pray for uh, John Holler's church that he teaches at. Uh, most people know this, but some might not. That uh, I went up to visit a friend that lives just down the road from his church. And so we went to that church on Sunday, and uh, the pastor had died the day before. So they are without a pastor. And uh, so we need to pray for the family of the pastor. He's 49 years old and got coronavirus. He had other issues, and he died from that. And uh, so we want to keep them in prayer. And uh, having said that, they, uh, while I was there, it made me realize that, uh, uh, you know, they have a church. They had somebody that could fill in and do the sermon, and they'll start a, uh, you know, looking for a pastor soon. But uh, it made me think that we don't really have anybody to fill in at the church here. And uh, so the next prayer for the superior word would be that, you know, maybe somebody young that loves the word, and that's all I care about. I don't care if he does a prophecy update and it make any difference to me. As long as he knows the word and loves the word, uh, we'd be great to have somebody that could fill in because, you know, I might punch my ticket tomorrow and I don't want to leave a church without people to uh, have somebody to tend to them. So that's just something to keep in mind is that, uh, uh, you know, kind of came to my mind while I was sitting there during John Holler's prophecy update is that if I'm not here, there's really nobody to fill in unless I have six months in advance to ask somebody that you know, Will was gracious enough to come down and take care of us on Sunday. But uh, And then uh, one other, Rick, who we do missionary work with, he uh, is going to have open heart surgery on 13 October. 
And so we'd ask for prayers for Rick as well. So we have those prayer requests, and we'll go ahead and pray, and then we'll get started. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the chance to come into your presence, and you know the things that were brought up just now, and other things that are on people's minds and in their hearts. And we would certainly pray that you would be with anybody that's having difficulties right now, or troubles, or you know, there's all kinds of financial burdens on people because of this past year. There's stress in people's lives because they're in states where they're locked down still. And uh, it, Lord, we would just ask that you would be with your people. And those that are hurting or that are, are shut up and don't know what to do, that you would just make yourself present to them in a way that they feel it so that they know that you're right there with them. And we know it from your word anyway. Your word tells us that you're with us, but to have just a, a little nod at times is to uh, really relieve the burden in our hearts and in our lives. So for those people that are in such a situation, please just make your presence known to them. And Lord, we would pray for the class that uh, there would be nothing that would be incorrect that is taught in this class. But if there is something, a doctrine which is uh, wrong, which I'm unaware of, that you would lead people to a right understanding of it so that they would not be misled by my improper handling of the word, but it's not something I would ever do, and I would pray that my doctrine would be pure and right before you. And Lord, uh, we just commit this uh, service to you, and we love you, and we praise you, and we thank you for all the goodness that you've blessed us with, and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Um, I got two pair of glasses on today. When I went up north, I took my glasses from here, and I put them in something so I wouldn't lose them, and now I've lost them. So, I have to have two pair of readers on to be able to see anything. Um, so if it looks kind of goofy, I apologize about that. And we'll go ahead and read this day in Christian history, just so we can get... It's October 1st. Yesterday was the 30th of September, and the night before, on the 29th, during the night, we had a cold front come through. It rained. And then after the rain, it got cool. I couldn't believe it, that here we are still in September, and we have cool temperatures. It was 73 high yesterday. And it was like, I can't believe it. It's just one of those unheard of things in Florida, and we had wonderful weather. So thank you, Lord. Um, October 1st, what determines how long an empire will last? In 539 BC, Cyrus II, the Persian king of the Medes and the Persians, conquered Babylon. God had referred to Cyrus as his anointed, who would fulfill his purposes in Isaiah 45. God had prophesied of Cyrus, before him mighty kings will be paralyzed with fear. Their fortress gates will be opened never again to shut against him. To Cyrus himself, the Lord said, I will go before you, Cyrus. I will smash down the gates of bronze and cut through bars of iron. This is exactly what happened. The first step in Cyrus II's ascendancy to power was a successful rebellion against his Median overlord, who was also his grandfather. As a result, the entire Median army defected from his grandfather to him. The resulting nation is often referred to as the Medo-Persian, since the two former nations were combined into one. Then Cyrus conquered Babylon, and for the next two centuries, the Medo-Persian Empire dominated the civilized world. In the vision of the four beasts, recorded in Daniel 7, Daniel writes, Then I saw a second beast, and it looked like a bear. It was rearing up on one side, and it had three ribs in its mouth between its teeth. And I heard a voice saying to it, get up, devour many people. Here, rearing up on one side is a reference to the ascendancy of the Persians over the Medes. And the three ribs in its mouth is most likely a prophecy of the three major victories of Medo-Persia over Lydia, Babylon, and Egypt. 
the end of the Medo-Persian Empire is prophesied in Daniel 8. Here, Medo-Persia is symbolized by a ram with two horns, representing Media and Persia. One of the horns was longer than the other, even though it had begun to grow later rather than a shorter one, referring to the fact that Persia developed later as a power than Medea, but became the more powerful of the two. In the vision, Daniel says that Medo-Persia did as it pleased and became very great. Daniel also relates that suddenly a male goat, anybody know who the goat is? Alexander, Greece, that's right, appeared from the west. This goat had one very large horn between its eyes, meaning Alexander the Great. The nation that was to defeat Medo-Persia and became the next world empire was Greece. Under the leadership of Alexander the Great, becoming king of Macedon at the age of 20, Alexander led a confederacy of Greek states to conquer Medo-Persia. The first battle against Persia was at Issus in modern-day Turkey, there, Alexander defeated Darius III on a narrow plain where the Persians lost the advantage of their superior numbers. Alexander then marched south toward Egypt. On the way, he visited the temple in Jerusalem where he offered sacrifices to God under the supervision of the high priest Jadua. Then the high priest showed Alexander the prophecy of Daniel 8 that he was the one to conquer Persia. Alexander accepted the prophecy and, as a result, became favorably disposed toward the Jews, allowing them to continue to follow their religious practices and exempting them from paying tribute in sabbatical years when their fields lay fallow. Alexander's fateful battle with Persia occurred on October 1st, 331 B.C. at Guagamela in present-day northern Iraq when he was just 25 years old, and there the Persians were decisively defeated. Daniel's vision described it as the goat Greece charged furiously at the ram, meaning Medo-Persia, and struck it, breaking off both its horns, Media and Persia. Now the ram was helpless, and the goat knocked it down and trampled it. There was no one who could rescue the ram from the goat's power. And an empire that did as it pleased brought God's judgment upon itself. Reflection, when you listen to the news, do you think about the role that God's hand plays in the affairs of nations? What are some examples? What does that tell us about God? And it ends, uh, they cite Daniel 2, praise the name of God forever and ever, for he alone has all wisdom and power. He determines the course of world events. He removes kings and sets others on the throne. So good stuff there from the book of Daniel. I like that commentary. Sometimes they're a little goofy or sometimes they're... You know, the doctrine is a little off, but that was a fun commentary there. Um, so, let's see here. The what? Oh, thank you. Yeah, i got to have that, because I'll have stuff going all over the place if I don't. Okay, let's see here. We have, um, uh, yeah, uh, before we do that, I'll say, I'll say it again Sunday, but it was just such a good time, I might as well t tell people right now, when I went to Ohio, I went up to visit uh Bill and Cess Bonham and Chuck and uh, Karen Arbuckle. There are four people that come to the Superior Word once or twice a year, and they'll be here on the 7th of October. They're just coming right down to visit. But uh, they, uh, they uh, took me the first day, in one day, to the Creation Museum in Kentucky, and then we drove another 70 miles, and that's like a 10-day trip right there. You could read constantly for 10 days and not get it all in. It was marvelous. I'm thinking Creation Museum is going to be a big square building with paintings on the wall or something. 
It's not. It's very nice. I can tell you, just the outside gardens, I could have spent the whole day walking through them. Ken Ham did a marvelous job on this place. Uh, and then the second thing we did on the second uh, on the same day was to go to the Ark uh, Encounter, the big life-size Ark that he built, and that is quality. You know, I, I'm not one to go to tourist sites and stuff like that, but I got to tell you what, this was really, really well done. If you want to know the Bible intimately as far as that particular account, they have every deal, detail you can imagine and more. I recommend it. And uh, I just uh, I, I, I just have to tell you, if you get the chance to go, please go. And then on the second day, we went to the U.S. Air Force Museum at, um, uh, what is it? Um, come on, Charlie, Wright-Patterson Air Force Base. And that, because I'm ex-Air Force, that was outstanding. They have four hangars the size of Moscow, each one of them. And in each hangar, there must be a thousand airplanes more history there than you could possibly imagine. The actual plane that dropped the bomb on Nagasaki is there. Air Force Ones are there. I mean, you pick a, a, the right flyer, the first plane ever to take off in human history is there. It is. So please go. Enough of that. I don't want to give you all the information, but you, you would love any of the three, especially the ones that deal with the Bible. Um, I will say this, though. I will say this, that walking through the entire Creation Museum, the doctrine on the boards was faultless. It was absolutely faultless. I went through and I read everything and I said, this is, it was marvelous doctrine that they had presented until the very last board. And then they had an error in their doctrine. The very last board as you're walking out, okay? And it says, you must repent of your sins and believe that Jesus died for your sins, etc." And I, I, I walked out and I said, I can't believe that. And one lady said, what? And I said, what? And she said, I felt exactly the same thing. She was just stewing over it, and she didn't want to say anything until I said it, and both of us caught it, is that uh, it, it, logically you cannot repent of your sins because it, it, what are you going to repent of? You don't fix yourself and then go to the doctor. You go to the doctor, he heals you, or he gives you the cure for it, and then you're healed. The only time that repentance is noted with salvation in Scripture is when? Does anybody remember? Well, wait, not what it means, but where is it? Acts 2, that's correct. It's when uh, Peter stood up to the people who had just crucified Jesus, the Jews. The Gentiles are not even mentioned until Acts chapter 10. But um, he said, you repent and believe, or I'm saying, repent and be baptized and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. They had to repent because they had just said he's not the Messiah and they crucified him. Repent means one thing and one thing only. It means change your mind. That's correct. You, they had to change their mind about Jesus. The only time a person needs to repent in order to be saved is if they've already rejected the gospel. If they've rejected the gospel, they need to repent. They need to change their mind about that, believe that Jesus is the Messiah, that he died for their sins, and then accept him. But you can't logically repent until after salvation, with the exception of what is given in Acts, which is a descriptive account. It prescribes nothing, but that's a problem because people are always taking Acts 2 and making it into a prescriptive account, and it doesn't work. One, it's not to the Gentiles. It was to only the Jews and only the Jews who had crucified Christ. Any Jew later who hasn't heard of Jesus doesn't need to repent because they don't even know who Jesus is. They need to follow the same pat pattern that all of us would follow. Who is this Jesus? He died for my sins. I believe that. And at that moment, you're sealed with the Holy Spirit, Ephesians 1, 13 and 14. So there you go. They got all the way through the Creation Museum in that one air, which I need to. Please don't let me forget this, uh, John and Kathy. We talked about it last night. To 
send Ken Ham an email thanking him for his wonderful presentation, but to change the last sign. Okay, here we go. 322 is where we're at. And uh, while you're reading, I'll be turning to that page. But the scripture declares that the whole world is prisoner of sin, so that what was promised, being given through faith in Jesus Christ, might be given to those who believe. Okay, they said uh, prisoner to sin. This one says, but the scripture is confined all under sin, that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. Same thought, but just they say prisoner. This one says confined under. If you're confined, you are a prisoner. prisoner. There you go. Okay, so Paul just stated that if there had been a law given, well, he said it two weeks ago. It's been uh, two Thursdays since this happened. Oh, one more thing. Burke did a marvelous job last week. The people that heard it have all told me how wonderful it was, and something happened in the live stream didn't work, and we apologize because that should have been up, and uh, we want to thank Burke right now for the uh, assistance he gave us while I was gone, and uh, I, so there you go with that. I'm sorry about that. I'm sorry that it can't be up there for people to see, but uh, I was in Ohio having fun, so I'll pass the buck on to somebody else. Um, okay, um, Paul just stated that if there had been a law given, which could have uh, given life, truly righteousness would have been by the law. We talked about that at the time. However, such is not the case, and people need to understand that. You cannot be declared righteous by observance of the law. It's impossible, okay? So, people need to understand that the law is done. It is obsolete. It is annulled. It is set aside. It is nailed to the cross, okay? We're not Hebrew Roots Movement people here. We don't go back and observe a law that's already been fulfilled by Christ, thus shaming God in Christ. We're not going to do that, okay? The law cannot grant life, meaning righteousness, which is provided by the Scripture. Here, Paul stands on the absolute authority of Scripture itself. He could not make his arguments concerning the reliability of Scripture if it wasn't 100% reliable. You know, people, it's funny how you'll watch somebody, you know, just turn on somebody on Christian TV that you've never watched before, then they'll stand there and they'll say, this is God's Word, and every word is precious and pure, and then they'll go ahead and they'll say, but this doesn't really mean what it means, and or this is cultural and it doesn't apply to you, blah, 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 when it's actually in Paul's letters and it's prescriptive for the entire church age. So uh, if you're going to say that this is God's word and that it is inspired, then you need to treat it as such. And it needs to be treated, as we'll find out in Sunday's sermon, in the proper context, okay? Um, I, I'm going to give an example in the sermon, but I'll give it now so when you hear it, it'll sink in, is that we read the 119th Psalm every single week before we start. We read eight of the 176 verses of Psalm 119. And throughout the entire Psalm, the, the psalmist is saying, how I love your law, how I love your commandments, how I love this, and let, uh, your word is precious, your judgments, your statutes, they're all great and glorious, okay? And so we can say he is a man that loved God's law. But the law of Moses is not the entirety of God's law. It is a perfect revelation of God, but it is an incomplete revelation of God, okay? If you stop at the law, you'll never come to Christ. Christ is the fulfillment of the law. He is the complete and final revelation of God, okay? And so when people come into a church and they say, well, you need to observe the feasts of the Lord, they're falling back on something which may have been perfect for the psalmist at the time, but it was incomplete. Christ fulfilled that particular feast, and therefore it is not to be observed again, unless you're just doing it as, you know, churches will get together and they'll say, well, this is what it was like when they observed the Passover. 
That's no problem with that. You're explaining something out of the Word, and you're showing people how they lived it and how they did it, as long as it's in accord with Scripture. And I say that because quite often you'll go into an observance of a Passover or of something, and they will add in all the Jewish traditions, all of the Jewish traditions which have nothing to do with Scripture. And then you are mixing things in, and who knows which is correct and which isn't, unless they are told this is from the Bible and this is not. Okay, so you got to be even careful with presentations that people are going to be precise. This is God's word. This is something that the Jews happen to uh, observe, but it's not in the word. And I'll give you a good example of that just so you can kind of see without giving too much away about the ark experience. They did that on the ark. They were very careful when you were walking through the ark to say, this is what the word says. This is how God presents this particular issue about, uh, you know, the flood or about the ark. And then they'll say, from here over to here, this is all artistic license. We have to fill in the blanks, just like a movie does. We have to give you information that is not in Scripture. Well, they built, a, a, you know, cubicles this big all the way down the ark, right? And the animals go here. We don't know if the cubicles were bigger or not. We have no idea. So they're just making a guess that this is how many cubicles there are. And then you go up to this floor and there's all this food. And, you know, they have it in certain type of containers. And this is artistic license. The Bible doesn't talk about how the food was stored. It doesn't say anything about it. So you need to be careful when you are citing something that you cite it as Scripture or not as Scripture. A good example of this is when we were in the projects one time, and one of the people we were talking to was citing the Left Behind series concerning the rapture. And I said, you know, that's actually not in the Bible. I want you to know that's not correct. That's just them making something up. And she, the next week, was so... I, I just love this lady. She said, I am so glad you said that. I have now learned that I need to be careful about taking the word as the word and what isn't the word and separating the two. And she does it. She's very careful about that now. Is that the word must stand alone. And all of the other stuff that we put in may be there for benefiting people. You can give a story during a sermon, but it needs to always be explained that this is the word this is not the word, because people don't know. When you're talking to them, they don't know what you're talking about unless you explain it to them, all right? They are the students, you're the teacher, and that's the way that it has to be. This is the word of God. Everything else, you want to bring in a tradition about Yom Teruah, which they call Rosh Hashanah, which it's not Rosh Hashanah, then you need to tell them Rosh Hashanah is not a biblical term. The trumpet may have been blown on this day, but it may not have been blown on this day. You know, Yom Teruah simply means the day of acclamation. It can be blowing trumpets. It can be shouting. It can be any type of noisy praising of the Lord. Okay? The fact that trumpets are blown is great, but you need to be careful not to add things in because now we have everybody on the planet thinks that Rosh Hashanah is the feast of the Lord, or actually the Jewish feast. They don't even call it the feast of the Lord. And they start adding in all kinds of things that have nothing to do with the day as outlined in the Bible. We need to be very careful about that. Hello, can we help you? Oh, I'm sorry. Yes, uh, that's my wife coming in exceptionally late today. So um, I, I, there's always a question that comes up when you're talking about the law yeah. and it being done. Yeah. I see what you're saying. I know what you're saying. I see where people get tripped up by that. They go, well, that means I can do anything I want. And there's... There's a word that you use here, is it licentious? Where you, where you just like, you, you feel that there are no laws. Oh, uh, license. Yeah, yeah. Right. We don't have license to sin. 
Right. Okay. We and, and that that isn't just the law. That is also the New Testament. Paul gives us probably more commands than the law does. I've never sat down and counted them, but he says you can't be sexually immoral. You can't do this and you can't do that. So we do not have license to do the things that are forbidden. Okay. What we have is we have prescriptions from Paul's hand, but we are under grace. We are not being counted sin if we do those things. If you are a saved believer in Christ, you are not being imputed sin for the things that you were told to do that you don't do or told not to do and you do them. Everybody understand that? That's 2 Corinthians 5.19. Because if we were being imputed sin, then every single time that we sin, and I don't care how small the sin is, we would lose our salvation every single time. We're not to lie. That's very clear in the New Testament as well as the Old, but or the New Covenant as well as the Old. We are not to lie. If you lie as a Christian, you are not imputed sin. Because if you were, you would lose your salvation, you would, the wages of sin is death, and you would be cut off from Christ. And then you'd have to be resaved again and again and again. What will happen when you lie is you will lose rewards. You are violating a prescriptive word from Paul, and therefore you will lose rewards for that. But be very careful to understand that we are not given license. Just because we're not being imputed sin does not mean that it does not displease God. You are to be holy because he is holy. That's right. We are to act in accord with the nature of God in everything that we do. We are not given license. And that's the word you're looking for. So, um, use not your liberty as a cloak. That's right. Use not your liberty as a cloak of what Unrighteousness, unrighteousness or license or whatever. Okay, but that's the right verse right there that we're looking for. Is do You have liberty in Christ, but do not use it to do something perverse. That's what we're not to do. Okay, we'll go on. Um, the reliability of Scripture, it is 100% reliable. However, as if almost personifying it, because it is the expressed word of God, he, Paul, notes that Scripture itself has confined all under sin. All people are confined under sin. The word confined is appropriate. It comes from the Greek word sukleo, which gives the sense of shutting up something. It is as if a sentence of guilt from the law is passed on to all, imprisoning them through the sin which proceeds from the issuing of the law. Okay, so Adam and Eve were, Adam was given the law actually in Genesis chapter 2 of every tree of the garden you may freely eat, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for on the day that you eat of it you shall surely die. Okay, then in chapter 2, the serpent goes to the woman, deceives her, she finds that it tastes yummy or whatever, she passes it on to Adam, Adam says, oh delicious, I'm, I'm paraphrasing here, okay, and uh, so then sin enters into the world, okay. And from that time, all people have been confined under sin. As his translation says, we are all prisoners to sin. Now, I somebody sent me something for um, uh, editing yesterday. It was about a seven-minute video. And he said, is the gospel presentation correct in this? And I'm going to tell you something. I'm not going to tell you what it is because it hasn't been published yet. I gave him a couple of things that I thought he should change. But I'm going to tell you, it is ingenious for the modern world. This should be a 10 billion view video. It's only seven minutes long, but he uses something that we use every single day in our lives and gives it as an example of our lives in relation to God and why not all paths lead to God. It is it is ingenious. I need to email him again just so he knows how ingenious it is, okay? 
if he doesn't get it published or if he doesn't respond because he hasn't responded today, eventually I'll just blurt it out someday. It, it is that marvelous. It is something that every person that you know would understand. I don't know anybody that wouldn't understand this except maybe my father, okay, because he, he's not in any way connected to the outside world. He's like me, no cell phone, but he goes way beyond that. He's never been on a computer in his life. Ever. So I can tell you that he's vicariously been on a computer through his son. Every time he needs something, I take care of it for him, but himself, he's never. So um, it, anybody would understand it. And I'm going to tell you, it is ingenious so that people can get, can get why not all paths lead to God. I'll leave it at that because I don't want to give it away, but I will eventually say it unless this guy uh, emails back. But I, I said, you make sure you send this video to me and I will post it. And I'll make sure that everybody sees this because it is such a, a brilliant insight of how we can. And it's not a one for one correlation. OK, nothing is because God is God and sin is sin and we're people. And but it is a marvelous way of picturing the, the uh, dilemma that we're in. OK, so here Adam has fallen. We are confined. We are prisoners to sin. In other words, it is the same argument that he's making right here that he made in Romans 7, 9 uh, through 12. Uh, I'm only going to read you, I think, uh, 7, 8, and 9 here. It says, um, but sin, taking the opportunity by the commandment, produced in me all manner of evil desire. Think of Adam and Eve. For apart from the law, sin was dead. It had no, uh, no power to do anything to Adam and Eve. Because there's no law, they could have gone up to any tree and eaten of it. Once the law was introduced, sin revived in me and I died. Oh, here it is. I was, once, I was alive once without the law. But when the commandment came, when the commandment was given by God in Genesis chapter 2, sin revived and I died. It's that simple. That's all we need to understand about the nature of humanity is that when law is given, it produces in us an evil desire, and I'm talking about God's perfect law. But you could use it even with a, a speed limit on the road, which I've done many times. You go down the road, and the speed limit says 40, and you go 45, you're breaking the law. And you didn't mean to. Your wife is having her baby, and you're trying to get to the hospital. It doesn't matter, okay? You violated the law. Sin revived, and I died. Whatever the circumstances are, we like to find extenuating circumstances for every single thing in this country. Uh, he was born poor. He was born the wrong color. He was born without money. Whatever. It doesn't matter. He broke the law. If we don't punish lawbreakers, then chaos is the only result. And that's the state of... It's right in the Bible. I mean, that's a paraphrase from the Bible, in essence. You must punish lawbreakers. Now, that doesn't mean you can't give grace as well. You can give grace and you can say the punishment for this, according to the law, is 30 days in prison. I am going to send you to prison, but I'm only going to send you for 15 because I understand you need to make money to support your wife that just had the baby because you were speeding down the road. Okay, whatever. So, but it is in the Bible that we are to punish wrongdoing. And there's a reason for that. Okay, anyway, the law can only bring death. And the law can only bring a sentence of guilt. This is true for all, Paul's words, all meaning every person and without exception. The word in Greek is in the neuter. It's in the neuter gender, which signifies that it is all-encompassing, male and female, Jew and Gentile, young and old, everybody is included. The intent then is that all humanity is con confined under sin, all of us. 
okay? I'm out there working at my uncle's house for the past couple days, killing myself in the heat until it got cool today, but uh, or yesterday. But uh, I was thinking about just this premise right here, is that we're all just confined under sin, every one of us. And this is the dilemma we're in. This is why we got to get out and tell people about Jesus. It doesn't matter if they don't accept Jesus. That's not our job. Our job is to tell about Jesus. Because without Jesus, they are not going to enter into God's wonderful paradise that he has prepared for his people. And so we need to make sure that we understand that. It doesn't matter if you're old or young. It doesn't matter if you're a Jew or a Gentile. There are no exceptions. Zero. Thus, another purpose for the law is revealed. It is so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. As I just said, it's our job to tell. It's their job to believe. At one point, you didn't believe, and then somebody told, and you believed. And at that point, you went from death to life. You went from being imputed every sin that you will ever commit to being imputed no sin ever again. Talk about eternal salvation. It's right there. Once saved, always saved. It's right there. Now you can lose your joy. You can lose your life. You can forget that you were saved, 2 Peter 1, 9, but you will not lose your salvation. All right? If there's a verse that you're struggling with, send it to me and I'll show you where. That is an incorrect analysis if somebody has told you otherwise. You're not going to lose your salvation. And I will tell you, there are many verses that are very hard to understand in Scripture, but they all have a resolution. Okay? So, the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. This brings us back to the promise of the seed, which is mentioned in verse 19. Jesus Christ is the seed, capital S, seed. Now, by faith in him and in him alone, the confining restraint of sin is removed. If you have been forgiven your sins, if you have been saved and you are now clothed in Christ, how can you lose your salvation? How is that possible? Because Paul says elsewhere that nothing in all of creation can separate us from the love of God, which is found in Christ Jesus our Lord. And he goes through the list. All of these things, nothing can separate us from that. If that's true and you're a part of creation, then you can't separate yourself from the love of God in Jesus Christ. It is a done deal. God did not make a mistake. He's going to overlook your faults after that point because he knows your heart on the moment you believed. And that's what he wanted. Okay? Every person here, I bet, has had a doubt about their salvation at some point. Anybody here disagree? You've always felt saved? I don't see anybody saying yes. I don't see no, some, some blank faces, but you've Everyone had doubts. Wonders. What's that? Everyone wonders. Oh, yeah, we wander, we doubt, we do things stupid, we forget. And yet, I think everybody here would agree you're still saved. Okay? It's the people that aren't that are the ones that are struggling, but they will be just as raptured as anybody else. I never read Romans 8, the last part of it. Romans. What you're quoting there. What about it? Nothing's going to separate us. Right. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. Romans chapter 8. That's absolutely right. Okay, so um, let's see here. The confining restraint of sin is removed. The contrasts are clear. Where there was confinement in the law, there is freedom in Christ. Where the law brought bondage, faith brings freedom. In the law, there is death, but in Christ, there is life. The two wholly contrast one another. Only in Christ are the promises realized. In the law, there can never be relief 
from the chains of sin which bind our souls. The law cannot do it. Please stop going back to Hebrew Roots Movement churches, Seventh-day Adventist churches, and other churches that say you have to do this or this or this in order to be saved because you are putting yourself back under that bondage, which is what Paul is going to continue to address in the book of Galatians. He's going to be <clears throat> very clear about it as well. So having said that... <clears throat> um, what was the point that I was just going to give? Um, oh, yeah, you know, we're talking about freedom and chains and Christ and you know, death and life and all of these things. And if you think about it, and I know I've repeated this before, but it's a good point to remember, is that there is a narrow path that leads to the broad, open places of heaven. There's no end to heaven, but there's a very wide path that leads to the confines of hell. It's a very narrow place. Everybody see the difference? So we have the choice of taking a broad path, which will take you to infinite confines, or you can have a very narrow path, the one path that God has given to the infinite openness of eternity in the presence of God. Wonderful. Anyway, <clears throat> uh, let's see. They what? It has walls and a border. It has walls and a border, too. At least the New Jerusalem does. That's right. It's there to keep people out that don't belong there. Okay, life application. Even those who have received Christ can be duped into believing that doing the things of the law can make one more pleasing to God. That's what I keep bringing up again and again about these movements out there. Yes, I trust in Christ, but I've given up pork because it will really make God happy. Please. Yeah, this is a trap. If one gives up pork because it makes them break out in hives, that makes sense. But if one gives up pork because it will make God happy, then it is implying that God is happier with that and with what you are doing than what his son did. A little leaven leavens the whole lump. One cannot make God more pleased than to accept what Jesus Christ has done in its entirety. Okay, everybody got that? If you think you're making God happier, what's that? Oh, okay, I don't even know what it is, so I just heard something fall. What? Oh, a bottle, a water bottle. It wouldn't matter. It's just water, so it could go all over the place. And, yeah. Anyway, um, uh, so, yeah, that's just one of those things that you need to remember when you're talking to these people on Facebook, and they say, well, I know that it makes God happy that I don't eat pork. Well, what can make him happier than you receiving what his son did in fulfillment of that law, which he also abrogated, or which he also annulled, or set aside, or made obsolete? You can't make God happier. That's one thing that people need to understand. God is either happy or he is unhappy. And you are the one that changes in relation to him, not the other way around. God like, does be, not change. He'd be happier if you actually read your Bible. Well, yeah, that's says. right. He'd be happier if you read your Bible and lived your life in the context of this dispensation. That's right. You'd make God happy. Okay, let's see here. 323 it is. Hang on, don't, don't start yet because I'm in the middle of doing something here. Okay, 323, go ahead. Okay. Before this faith came, we were held prisoners by the law, locked up until faith should be revealed. Okay, close. But before faith came, we were kept under guard by the law, kept for the faith which would afterward be revealed. So just a little bit different, but still wonderfully uh, uh, precise. Okay, hang on one second. Let me make a note on this. All right. Okay, let's see here. Uh, to ensure context, the previous verse that we just looked at needs to be included as a point of reference. So here's what it says. But the scripture has confined all under sin that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. Verse 23, but before faith came, 
we were kept under guard by the law, kept for the faith which would afterward be revealed. So there's a purpose to what God is doing. It's a dispensational model of human history. God is slowly and progressively revealing things to us in various ways. He does do it through covenants. I'm not anti-covenant, you know, but covenantalism in itself is not an explanation of how the Bible works. It's a partial explanation. Yes, God works through covenants. There was the covenant with Adam, we could say. There's the covenant with Noah. There's the covenant with Moses, the, you know, the people of Israel, the law of Moses. There's the covenant with Abraham, which I skipped right over, okay? There's the uh, covenant with David. We got all these covenants going on, but that does not fully explain what's going on. Neither does dispensationalism. But dispensationalism is a part of what God is doing. He's using dispensations to reveal what's going on in the covenants. So don't dismiss covenantalism just because, you know, Reformed theologians use it, but it needs to be taken in a broader context of other things that God is doing, okay? I'll talk about that on Sunday in a different way. Is it this Sunday, can anybody here, don't you, Kathy, because I know you can, can anybody here, oh, you're looking up at the board. I'm not going to do it because the, it says it on the board. Deuteronomy 6, verse 4. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Okay, we're going to learn some theology from that. I mean, we're going to do five verses, not just that one verse, but we're going to learn some theology, and we're going to learn that God is slowly, just as he does through dispensations, he is slowly revealing himself to us in a way that we can grasp. Okay, now, this will come from the sermon, so once again, you'll, you'll have it on your mind when you hear it on Sunday, if you're here, if you're not, shame on you. But um, uh, give me... A presentation of the Lord, Jehovah, yod heh vav -Hey, from the book of Genesis. Just a presentation of the Lord. Okay, can anybody think of one? How did the Lord... He walked in the garden with... He walked in the garden with, Eve, with Adam and Eve. Okay, we know that's true. Now, people can say, well, that's allegorical, or it doesn't really say that. You know, it does say it. But, okay, give me another one of the Lord from Genesis. Well, that's another presentation of the Lord, the burning bush. He's revealing something about himself. That's what? That's well, that's Exodus, but it's still before what we're in today. So I might have said Genesis only, but I meant, you know. Okay, there's one more that I'm specifically thinking of because this is explicit. We could say, people will argue about the Garden of Eden one. I agree with you 100%, but people will argue it. It cannot be argued from Genesis chapter 1, 8. 1-8. Well, he, he met with Abraham, but it was just before he went down to Sodom. Oh, the three. The three. And it specifically identifies one of them as the Lord. yud Hey vav Hey. Okay? Now, if he says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And he said in Exodus, I think at 23 or 32, he says, No man can see my face and and live, yeah. right? Well, now we've got a contradiction, don't we? We've got a real contradiction in the Bible unless it can be explained. And guess what we're going to do on Sunday? Explain. We're going to explain that because the Lord doesn't just say, here I am, this is all the information on me in one verse and say, this is me. There's a whole Bible and we will never in all of eternity plumb the depths of the Lord, but he is showing us very precise hints of his nature all the way through the Bible. That's what he's doing. He's revealing it to us. So that's 
the idea that we're getting here. Just like dispensations are being revealed, just like covenants are being revealed, the Lord himself is revealing things to us so that we can say, I am getting this. Slowly but surely, if I'm willing to look and not just shut my mind to it, I am getting this. Now, unfortunately, and I'll talk about this towards the end of the sermon, a group of people that should have gotten it did not get it. And it's right in their word, and they did not get it. Okay, so we'll talk about that on Sunday, but this is what we need to understand about what's going on. Paul's beginning word of verse 23. Are you going to talk about the Shema that it means on Sunday? Yeah, absolutely. That's that's what we're talking about. I know that. Oh. The, the, the term itself. Oh, Shema. It just simply means here. Oh, it Shema means here. That's it. Shema Yisrael. Here, O Israel. Oh, okay. Yeah, that's all it means. Okay. And so, but we're going to talk about the whole thing, and it's not going to be in depth like it was with Exodus 3.14. We spent a lot of time on that. This will be maybe a third of the sermon, but it's an important part of it. We don't need to flesh it out any more than I've done there. I've checked it, and I've said, I don't need to add anything else in without getting long-winded. But we could have done a full sermon on it, and it would have been a little more detailed, but we would have one sermon on Deuteronomy uh, 6, 1 through 3, and it wouldn't make any sense. Okay, then you have four, and then you end with five. It would, it's, it's appropriate for what we need, and it's not too much, you know, if there are questions from it, the questions can be deduced from the rest of the Bible by taking this in its context. So, there you go. Um, Paul's beginning word of verse 23, translated as but, but the scripture, but before faith came, the word but is not the same as in verse 22. It is probably better to say something like, and now or moreover, in order to show the original is a continuation and an expansion on the thought, not merely another contrast. So once again, verse 22 said, but the scripture is confined all under sin. And then it says, but before faith came, it sounds like you're using the same word and it's not. So changing it would be a help for people to understand that Paul is being very precise here. Okay, in other words, it is speaking of the new aspect of God's progressive revelation of how he deals with and reveals himself to mankind. And it's funny that I typed this, what, eight years ago, ten years ago? I don't know. I typed it a long time ago, and then I start talking about Deuteronomy, and I just repeated exactly what I said about two minutes ago, and I didn't read that. It just... God is revealing himself, and as long as you can understand that, and when you come to passages, you say, why is this here? Well, he must be showing me something new, okay? That's what he's doing. I'll read that again. In other words, it is speaking of the new aspect of God's progressive revelation of how he deals with and reveals himself to mankind. I'm going to give you an example of this, okay? Progressive revelation. I talked about it during the Nephilim sermon from uh, Genesis chapter 6, okay? And I said that God has revealed certain information to us, and he's not going to go beyond that when he introduces the Nephilim. It says, and the uh, sons of God saw that the sons of men were, or the daughters of uh, the sons of men were beautiful, whatever. You know the verse I'm talking about. And everybody goes ballistic, and they say that was angels sleeping with humans, okay? That wasn't even introduced into the Bible at the time. There's nothing logical to make that assumption. And what do they do? They go to Job, Chapter 1 and chapter 2, the only other time that the term Bene Ha Elohim is used in Scripture, and they say, see, that's speaking of angels, and therefore Bene Ha Elohim in Genesis 6 is angels. Well, I've got news for you, and I haven't done this yet because I haven't had time, but at some point I will do it. Job chapter 1, Bene Ha Elohim is not speaking of angels. If you've been taught that, you're wrong. How do I know? Because Benzer, when he was here from England, 
brought it to me and he said, I don't think that's speaking of angels at all. And I'd always thought it was speaking of angels. And so I said, well, I'll, I'll consider what you've said, but I'm not going to do it without a study. And so we sat down together and we went through all 350 instances, actually 366 instances of Bene Ha Elohim. And I can assure you that that in Job is speaking of human beings. It's not speaking of angels. We'll read it right now. Progressive revelation is actually a very important doctrine. And so we're going to divert here for just a second. We're going to go to the book of Job. You've got to go in the right direction to get to Job, though. I was going in the wrong direction. Job chapter 1, okay, and it says here, uh, 1, 6, I think it is. Um, one, oh, I'm in chapter 3 still. Um, okay, yeah, 1, 6. Now there was a day when the sons of God, Beneha Elohim, came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came among them. So everybody says that's speaking of angels, and Satan is going among them. And guess what it does? Everybody that cites that then cites something from Job that's uh, from later in the book of Job, which is clearly speaking of angels. The uh, when the uh, whatever when they rejoiced as uh, God was creating, and showing you that the angels are there. But it's not the same term. It doesn't say Beneha Elohim there. It just simply says something else. And people make this conclusion that they're the same thing. It's not. I'll, I'll, this will all be put down on paper sometime. But here's what it says. Now there was a day when the sons of God, Beneha Elohim, came to present themselves before the Lord. And Satan also came among them. The sons of God there are human beings. They are people that are presenting themselves before the Lord, just as we are right now. Just as any assembly of people will do when they come before the Lord. It's not speaking of angels at all. And Satan came among them. What does Satan do? Paul says it very clearly and Peter says it as well. What? He's the accuser, He's the accuser of the brethren. He comes among the brethren. Peter says he comes around you like a roaring lion looking for whom he may devour. And Paul says basically something akin to that as well. They are talking about Satan coming among the brethren to destroy them. It is not speaking of angels. But that's why progressive revelation is such an important aspect of what God is doing. Because you can go all the way back to the book of Job, which is, you know, what, 30 books or 25 books after, I don't know, what is it? It's the, no, it's the 18th book of the Bible. So it's 17 books after Genesis. And you take something out of there and you insert it into Genesis chapter 6. So you can make an argument that angels are sleeping with men. It doesn't work that way. And plus, it's not angels in Job chapter 1 or chapter 2. Satan is among people presenting themselves before the Lord. And how do I know that? Because we also didn't just go through all 366 instances of Bene Ha Elohim, but we also look to the word present themselves. It's the same word that Israel did when they came before the Lord. They presented themselves before the Lord. The same word used again and again for people coming before the Lord, presenting themselves. And then there's one more word that I went in there. Uh, anyway, we went through the whole verse, and there is zero. There is this much substantiation for that being angels. Zero. Everything leads up to the fact that it is human beings that are presenting themselves before the Lord. Satan comes among them. And how do we know that that's the case? Is because who does he pick out to accuse before the Lord? Job. He's there presenting himself among the sons of men, Job being one of them. Have you not considered no, what? God presented Job to him. I understand that, but what I'm saying is that Job is the one that's being presented. Oh, yeah. That's what I'm saying. And then Satan is the one that says, well, you know, afflict him. But God is saying, have you not considered my servant Job? 
Why would he even say that? It's because Job is presenting himself before the Lord, exactly as people do. So, you got a hedge around him. <laughs> it, it, that's right. you got a hedge around him and all these other excuses which were not valid. So understand, I'm talking about the book of Galatians, but progressive revelation is another key aspect of understanding biblical doctrine. You want to make sure that what God is doing is something that is consistent and not inserted from a later time or out of somebody's head because then you come up with presuppositions, which I had up until this year when Benzer showed up here right before the uh, coronavirus lockdown and we had a conversation. And instead of having a nice dinner and talking about, you know, fun stuff, we spent the next, what, two or three? I don't know how many hours we sat there going through every instance of those words because I'm not going to just say, oh, that makes sense and I'll go with it. I'm going to say that makes sense and let's check. And we did. It is not speaking about angels. So the Nephilim uh, conspiracy fails, okay? Fail. It is human beings, and it is the line of Seth that saw the non-line of Seth, and they went into the women, and they had children. It was not. It, it, go watch the sermon that I did on the Nephilim, and it will all make sense after you understand that. Anyway, we'll go on. Uh, progressive Revelation, where was that? Um, <clears throat> where, uh, okay, God's progressive revelation of how he deals with and reveals himself to mankind, including Nephilim. The law was given, and it confined all under sin, according to Paul. Using another term to indicate this same idea, he now says that we were kept under guard by the law. It is as if those under the law were continuously monitored in the prison of sin. Think of that. Israel is in what? The prison of sin. And how do we know that's true? I brought it up in two sermons in the past month, and I've got it coming in more sermons. Because Isaiah says that the Lord will do what with Israel? He will redeem Israel. Why does Israel need to be redeemed if they've been redeemed from Egypt? All he did was bring them from one bondage and put them into another. That's all he did for them. They were redeemed in order to be redeemed. Okay? And people miss that fact, and they think the law is an end in and of itself. It's not. It's prison. Israel was under prison, and they were guarded. They were constantly monitored in that prison. If you don't believe that, just go read the book of Kings, okay? The, the, the apostasy that goes on, and every time it's sin. It's sin, but this was sin to the people of Israel, but this was sin to this king or that king. They are being monitored in a prison, a bondage. The verb for kept under guard is in the imperfect tense. The law held and continuously held those under its domain, just as a jailer would do for any prisoner under his control. They were in prison and they were kept in prison and they were constantly monitored in that state. That is what's going on there. The law was given as a means of preventing escape, not as a means of protecting the people. As it says in 1 Corinthians 15, 56, the sting of death is sin, and the strength of sin is the grace of Jesus Christ. No, the law, as Burke called out, it is the law. That is what kept these people in sin, is they had a law. We now have God's grace in Jesus Christ, and we are not imputed sin. What we have is infinitely, not just a little bit, it is infinitely, Burke's over here, got his hands up, he's about to shout. Literally, if you think about it, my hair's standing up. It is literally infinitely better than what Israel had. And people want to be under what Israel had? you got to be out of your mind. Oh, okay, let's see here. Um, the sting of death is sin, and the strength of sin is the law. The law, then, 
is what bound those under its constraints, holding them fast. It was the guard by whom those who belong to sin are kept under lock and key, under moral captivity without possibility of liberation except through faith. That is Vincent's Word Studies commentary right there. However, the law was not intended as a permanent dispensation or outcropping of how God would deal with man. Once again, you, yes, the law was a part of covenants. Okay, David was under the law and he was given a covenant. So that's fine. Covenantalism goes so far, but it does not explain what's going on. We have dispensations. It is an outcropping of what God is doing. He's doing something here and he's going to continue to do it here. But in the middle, he gives us grace. Okay, the law will find its end after seven more years of the law. But in the meantime, we are under grace. We will be taken out of here. Israel's going to find out how bad the bondage was that they now are under again, and they're going to come to Jesus Christ. It's all coming soon to a tribulation period near you. Okay, under, um, uh, let's see here, the law was not intended as a permanent dispensation or outcropping of how God would deal with man. It was intended to last only until a certain point and then end. It was meant that those under it would be kept, as Paul says, kept for the faith, which would afterward be revealed. The faith in Christ is what the law is being, the people are being kept under the law for. And when he came, they didn't see it. Instead, they fell back on the law. They rejected Christ, and they have gone through 2,000 years of misery because of it. While the nations have streamed to Christ, Israel's been out moving from nation to nation, being persecuted and pogroms and all of the terrible things that have happened upon them, and it was a self-inflicted wound. Greed. We're going to lose our position and our We're, place. That's right. We're going to lose our position and our place is what they said, and so we need to get rid of this man. Yeah. That's exactly what it was. And the people, unfortunately, are a part of the body of Israel. It is a corporate whole, as we keep seeing again and again. We'll see that again on Sunday, when you'll see at times that Moses will be speaking in the singular, all of Israel, and then he'll stop, which he will, in one verse, one part of one verse on Sunday, and he'll go to the plural. Just one part. You all, and then he'll go back to the singular, Israel. Now, why would he do that? And we'll explain it on Sunday. But if you see these things and you pay attention to them, you get an understanding of what God is doing. Just as you just said, we'll lose our position and our place. The common people of Israel didn't care. They're just out there living their lives, but they are a part of this collective whole. They are a part of the body, and when those leaders made that decision, they, the common people, were affected by that decision. It is a one-fits-all deal for Israel. Now, that doesn't mean that individual Israelites couldn't come out from under it, because we know that John did. We know that Peter did. We know that 500 did. All of these people came out of Israel, 3,000 on the day of Pentecost, and more later, okay? But as a corporate whole, they are bound what by what their leaders decide okay the individual can leave but the corporate whole remains and that is once again i say it again and again it is a picture of our salvation with christ god has never gotten rid of israel despite all of their waywardness despite all of their failings he has kept them as a people because he promised that he would and when he promised that he would save you it means that he will save you Okay, they are just simply a template of what happens with us. Okay, uh, let's go on. Let's see uh, here. Quickly, um, though, is that uh, Israel is convinced that, that God said, you're my favorite child. That's right. I was it's listening. It's not. You're, you're, you're my chosen one. That's For what? 
Chosen for what? That's exactly right. What were you chosen for? And that's, I was listening to that part of Deuteronomy on my audio Bible in the car today. Exactly that one. You're a special people unto me. Well, I'm going to talk about that in a sermon. It might be next week's sermon or two weeks. And there's just one word change from what he says in one passage that we've already gone through and what we're going to go through in a week or two. And when you get to it, you got to pay attention because I'm going to talk when I, I actually was so excited when I saw this one little change and what it meant. I took the entire commentary and I sent it to Sergio. I said, read this. And he went, wow, it just, it blew him away. Just one word changes everything. You think that you have one purpose and the Lord has a different purpose for you. And you're just, you know, we'll get into it when we get into it. Let's go. Um, let's see here. Yeah, they're under it just as a jailer would do. I read that. Okay. Yes, it was meant to, that those under it would be kept for faith, which would afterward be revealed. Paul's words may seem distant to us now that we've been in the church age for 2,000 years, but they're actually as relevant today as they were when they were written to the Galatians. Those in Galatia were being told they needed to adhere to the law in order to be pleasing to God. People still hold to this today, and the heresy continues on as if Paul's words have no meaning at all. And even if the entire law isn't demanded, people are told that if they simply followed certain precepts of the law, they would be more pleasing to God. This sounds appealing, but it is untrue. The way to be pleasing to the Father is to trust in the work of the Son. Give me the verse. John 6, 29. Oh, there you go. I knew you were there. Okay. Yeah. This is the work of God that yeah. you believe in the one that he has sent. Did one of you say that too? I heard. 28. Okay, well, you were right there. He, he was off by one. And we'll give you one wheel off the Maserati. <laughs> That's at 628, 629. It's right in that area. That's okay. This is the work of God. Life application. Why would anyone, why would anyone want to go back to the bondage of the law when we have been freed from it by faith in Christ? Can we please God more than Jesus did? Stand fast on Christ's finished work and remember the words of the Bible. Salvation is of the Lord. That's from the book of, begins with a J, ends with an H, has an Ona in the middle. Jonah, Jonah very good. From the book of Jonah. Salvation is of the Lord. Trust in him and in him alone for your righteousness. He was underwater when he said that. Yes, he was inside the, the belly of a fish when he said that. Okay. Isn't that a marvelous book? I'm telling you, Jonah is just one of those things you can go back and read a hundred times and just, it's exciting. It's just, ah, 324. Oh, wait, let me turn there so I can compare. We're going to make a comparative study here. 324. So the law was put in charge to lead us to Christ that we might be justified by faith. Okay. That's one of the explicit purposes of the law. We could close this and not have any commentary and know that this is another explicit purpose of the law. The law was, and I'm going to read this because it's a little different. Therefore, the law was our tutor. That's right. To bring us to Christ, that we might be justified by faith. That is one of the explicit reasons for the giving of the law. There are about four or five explicit, actually there's more than that, but that comprise what we need to know about the giving of the law. But this is one of them right here. It's a marvelous verse. We got time, I think, to finish this paragraph. Well, the old King James says schoolmaster. Schoolmaster. It's pedagogue. That's exactly right. Paul now gives us another explicit purpose for the law. It was our tutor to bring us to Christ. The word translated as tutor is pedagogos, a word meaning a pedagogue. In the New Testament, it is only used in 1 Corinthians 
4, verse 15, and then again here and in the next verse. Some older translations use the word, as Burke just said, schoolmaster. So we're going to take a minute and we're going to go to 1 Corinthians 4 because I don't remember it and I didn't cite it here. 1, 4, 15 says, For though you might have 10,000 instructors in Christ, yet you do not have many fathers. For in Christ Jesus I have begotten you through the gospel. Instructors there would have been pedagogue. He was their pedagogue, okay? Um, let's see here. Uh, yes, this is incorrect. Oh, schoolmaster. This is incorrect. The word was originally used when speaking of a slave that had been placed in charge of a child. So schoolmaster doesn't give the correct sense of it, okay? But it is correct what you said, okay? It was his responsibility, this person, to take child, the child to school. He was responsible for the care and moral discipline of the child, not as one who provides the intellectual discipline which school provides. In other words, if you see schoolmaster is a poor rendering of it. It sounds right, but it's not technically correct because a schoolmaster is going to do something completely different than what a pedagogue would do. Albert Barnes notes that it is true that when the pedagogus was properly qualified, he assisted the children committed to his care in preparing their lessons, but still, his main duty was not instruction, but it was to watch over the boys. Think of Israel. Watch over the boys to restrain them from evil and temptation and to conduct them to the schools where they might receive instruction. This is his job, and this is the job of the law. It's to be a pedagogue, a tutor, somebody that brings us morally along, that keeps us out of trouble. No, that's not right, because your father would be displeased with that, and someday you will be in your father's position. That was his job. Schoolmaster doesn't do that. He gives you instruction. One plus one equals four, and nine plus seven equals 13. So be ready when your father asks you those questions, okay? That's a little different than what the tutor would do. For this reason, the word tutor is preferable simply because of its etymology. It comes from the word tuleri, which means to look upon or to guard. Some translations use the word guardian, and Young's ingeniously translates this as a child conductor. That, I love that when I read that. This child conductor then is used metaphorically for the law which is given to lead us to Christ. What is the term used of the people of Israel in the Old Testament? It's used again and again and again. But the blank did evil in the sight of the Lord. Well, the kings. No, no, no. The collective body of Israel. The children of Israel. Did evil. Huh? What I'm saying is that the term used is children. Oh, Paul calls us what in the New Testament? You are sons of God. But in the Old Testament, they would use the term, and it's the same term, uh, Bene Yisrael, sons of Israel. But the translators will use the term children when speaking of them because they're using this verse here as their understanding of the nature of Israel under the law. They were children. The children of Israel did evil in the sight of the Lord. They're not mature. When we come to the New Testament, we come to Christ, we become sons of God through faith. So you'll see this terminology. Even though it's the same word, bene, it can be translated as children or it can be translated as sons. The reason why the term children is used is translators' preference when they rightly understand that they were considered as children, being schooled by the or tutored by the what did he call it? Child conductor. Okay, so if you have a good translation, they will make these distinctions.
just as a point of reference. It's not something that you need to get upset at your Bible if it says the sons of Israel. You don't need to do that because it means sons of Israel. But if they are translating it as a child, they're doing it for a theological lesson for your understanding. They are under a tutor and they need to be brought to the full sonship. Okay, there you go. Anyway, the moral upbringing of the law showed that no one is justified by the law. Its demands were too heavy and it led to bondage, not to freedom. The giving of the law was intended to show this. Abraham was justified by faith, but man is inwardly inclined to want to do something in order to be pleasing to God. If you've witnessed to 10 people in your life, you know that nine of them said, well, I'm going to heaven because I've done better than that guy, or because I helped old ladies across the road, or because it's always about doing something. We're inclined to do that. All of us, it's our nature to want to do things, especially when we are trying to please God in order to get to heaven. We want to do and do, all right? So I'll read that again. Abraham was justified by faith, but man is inwardly inclined to want to do something in order to be pleasing to God. And so the law was given to show what man must do in order to be found perfect in his sight. Only in perfectly fulfilling every precept of the law could one be considered fully pleasing to him in regards to doing. Leviticus 18.5, the man who does the things of the law will live by them. Nobody can do the things of the law. And that's why that verse is brought up again and again in the New Testament. It's to show us that in the doing, there is only death. In the giving of the law and its high expectations, the history of the Jews showed a continuous failure to meet the law's demands. We were being given our moral instruction by our pedagogue, by our child caretaker, or whatever, child conductor, all right? When enough time under the law had been spent to show how utterly impossible it was for fallen man to meet its demands, Christ came. That was the whole purpose of that 1,500 years of human history of Israel, is so that we could understand that the Israel just failed and failed and failed. They'd get a good king and he'd do pretty good. And next thing you know, he's doing something bad. Hezekiah, right? He did all these great things, but then he failed at the end of his life. Even Josiah, you know, he's, I'm going to call you home. And what does he do? He goes out and starts making reforms and eventually gets killed in battle. I mean, the whole thing from beginning to end is just bad news after bad news after bad news. And you have a good guy. And then the next thing you know, his son comes in. He's worse than the 10 before him. So it just... The point of the law is to show us that we need something other than the law. All right. Christ came. He was able to fulfill its demands. The man who does the thing, things of the law will live by them. He did. He fulfilled them on our behalf. Now, by faith in his work, we are, as Paul says, justified by faith. The law had met its purpose. It had led us to understand that it is not by our works, by our doing, but by the work of the Lord. He did. And we're saved by faith in that. We can be saved in that way and in that way alone. Life application. We can only have it one way. Either we will work our way to heaven by deeds of the law, an impossible mountain to climb, or we will trust in Christ to reconcile us to God through his finished work. It's a difficult path because it is contrary to our nature to set aside ourself and trust in another's doing for us. In the end, we must come to the end of ourselves and simply trust Christ alone for our salvation. That's why it's so easy when you talk, talk to somebody that already knows they're a sinner. They already know that they're going to hell. I just, God could never love me. Well, yeah, the Bible's proved that. 
And it also proves that, I'm sorry, he could never love me. It's proved that in you. But now let me tell you what he did for you. And it proves something entirely different than what you expect. You're looking at the law. You're looking at your sin before a holy God. And he's done something to eradicate that and to bring you to himself. And look at the freedom people have when they find out about Christ and they go to church and they cry for three months or four months, sitting there weeping that Christ would save even them. But the people that think that they're doing good, you know, what did Elon Musk say today? Anybody know what he said? They were talking about um, uh, the uh, coronavirus, and he said, I'm probably not going to get that vaccine. He's just, he was just down on Bill Gates. I mean, he was tearing the guy up, all right? And, yeah, you know what his response was when they said, you're not going to get the vaccine? He said, no, everybody dies. Well, he probably thinks that he's okay. I'm doing. I'm doing great things. I've made a lot of money. It's do, do, do. And so he probably thinks he's safe. All right. And maybe he doesn't. I have no idea what's going on in his head. But he understands that everybody dies. And so he's not going to get the coronavirus vaccine because he says, one, I'm not in the age bracket that needs it. My health doesn't demand it. He says, why would I take it? Right. And in the process, he's belittling all of the people out there, the mainstream media and the Bill Gates and all of these people that are trying to shove this down people's throats, scaring people into it. But the one precept that he doesn't get, and I was thinking this as I was reading that article, is, man, this guy needs Jesus. Because he understands everybody dies. And he's thinking, I'm okay with that. You're not okay with that. Believe me, you're not. If you don't know Christ, you are not okay with that precept. It's a true precept but you're not okay with it. I feel like sitting down and penning a letter to him right now and saying, you know, you need to read this. I doubt if it would even get to him. But, you know, everybody needs Jesus. All right. Um, yeah, I read that. 325 and then we'll be done because we only got 15 minutes and this will end a paragraph. Now that faith has come, we are no longer under the supervision of the law. Okay. But after faith has come, we are no longer under a tutor. But that's correct. Supervision of the law. The law is the tutor. The law is supervising Israel. And Israel is failing every step of the way. Okay? And just, you know, that's not to be hard on Israel, but it's true in and of itself that when we are under a tutor, and he's the guy that's supposed to bring us up properly so that our father will be pleased when we take over the house, guess who gets in trouble every time we screw up? It's not us. It's the tutor. The tutor is the one that says, sir, I've been teaching him and he just won't learn. Well, you're teaching him not effective enough, right? That's just the way it is. The tutor has been given a responsibility and he doesn't want to hear excuses. Well, who is it that's failing every time that Israel screws up? The law. The law is failing Israel. That's the whole point. It's failing them because it can't make them righteous. It can't make them holy. What was the thing that they did immediately after receiving the Ten Commandments? By the great display of God, with all of his holiness and all of the spooky scariness that they said, we don't want to hear his voice anymore. What was the next thing they did? The golden calf. The law is the failure. And it does not mean that there's anything wrong with the law. The law is perfect in everything it teaches, but we are imperfect and the law cannot fix that. Therefore, the law is the failure, but it's not because the law is sin. It's because we have sin in us, and it cannot cure that. That's the lesson that we need to keep teaching ourselves. Like a tutor that doesn't speak the language of the... Yeah, the tutor doesn't even speak the same language. It doesn't even speak the same language, and so how can it do anything for him? Okay, 325. In the previous verse, 
Paul explained the purpose of the pedagogue, or child conductor, as Young's called it. That individual's duties did not carry on forever. There was a point where the child was grown up or he was mature enough, and the guy says, this kid is on the ball. He might only be three years old, but he can take over your house, right? Whatever. Okay. Instead, they were set up with a particular time frame in mind, after which he would no longer be needed. The person's duties would end, and a new part of the individual's life would come about. So it is true with the law of Moses. It was never, it was never, never, never intended to be a permanent part of God's plans in redemptive history. It is, as I said, a perfect part of God's plans, but it is incomplete revelation. It is only good so far as it points us to Jesus Christ. That is it. And when it meets that goal, it's served its purpose. Okay? It was never intended to be a permanent part of God's plans in redemptive history. Instead, it would serve its purpose and then be set aside. Hebrews 7.18, It is set aside. It is annulled. It is obsolete. That predetermined point was after the work of Jesus Christ. In his death, the law was fulfilled, and in his resurrection comes a new covenant. All right? It was actually initiated in his blood, okay? But it comes into effect, and we know it with the resurrection, but it is in his blood that the new covenant is is given, okay? So uh, it is also initiated a new dispensation. When he came out of the grave, he showed us that we are now saved by faith and faith alone. No deeds of the law. They were never saved by deeds of the law, but they didn't know that. David clued into it when he said, blessed is the man to whom sin is not imputed. He knew that the law demanded sin be imputed. And somehow he also knew that man could not be imputed sin that he had committed. Then he said, blessed is that man. So even under the law, it was always by faith. They just didn't know how to piece that together properly. And hence, they were given the day of atonement and it took care of it. And that was a day of faith. So they didn't even sit down and think the whole thing through. But that's a different argument. Instead, it would serve its purpose and then it would be set aside. That predetermined point was after the work of Jesus Christ, all right? It initiated a new dispensation, that of faith, the promised seed has come, and through him we are granted full rights as sons of God. I wrote children of God, but it should say sons of God here, so I'm going to pen that in right now, because we are sons of God through faith, okay? Anyway, in other words, the law of Moses was the pedagogue for the people of God. It has shown us our need for Christ and led us directly to him. How people can't see this is simply amazing. Even after being shown the explicit words of the New Testament concerning the fulfillment and the ending of the law, I had somebody email me this past week about the Sabbath, and I went and I said, here's the verses. I didn't write these words. These are not my words. I didn't dream this up. This is what the Bible says. It is in black and it is white. And if you can't read this and understand it, I can't help you. I have no help for you because I didn't write this. I'm just simply taking what God has put in his word and I'm sending it to you. The law is annulled, okay? And the Sabbath is a part of the law, okay? It's not repeated in the New Testament in any way, shape, or form as, or new covenant as being required, okay? Other things are, we're not to do this and we're to do that, but the Sabbath is not one of them. And in fact, it is downplayed entirely by Paul. Why are you observing Sabbaths and feasts and, you know, all these things in Colossians 2, 16 and 17? And then he says um, uh, in the book of Hebrews, yes, it was Paul, even though it's not signed by Paul, but I think it's Paul. Uh, in the book of Hebrews, he says, now we who believe have entered that rest. 
it's our Sabbath. He is our Sabbath rest. All of that typology of the Old Testament, Exodus 16, and then the giving of the law, and all the other times the Sabbath are mentioned, it's only picture in Christ, every single word of it. He is our rest. We have entered into that rest, okay? Even after being shown the explicit words of the New Testament concerning the fulfillment and ending of the law, people perversely turn from Christ's work and back to the law. They would rather be under the strict and even harsh hand of a pedagogue than be considered sons of God with full rights that come with, along with that honorable position. The law was a tutor. Faith has come. Therefore, as Paul says, we are no longer under a tutor. One plus one always equals two in proper theology. The law was a tutor. Faith has come. We're not under a tutor. We're not under law. It couldn't be more explicit. Paul could not be more explicit about what he's saying, and yet people reject it. And they go to these Hebrew roots churches, and they condemn themselves and their children to an eternity away from God because they fail to see the glory of what he did in the giving of his son. Oh, let's see here. Uh, the law was a tutor. Faith has come. We are no longer under a tutor. In other words, we are no longer under the law. Be done with it in its entirety. Now, live by faith in Christ Jesus. Remembering Paul's words from chapter 2 of Galatians, for I, through the law, died to the law that I might live to God. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not set aside the grace of God, for if righteousness comes through the law, then Christ died in vain. I love when people out of their heads follow along with me and repeat it out loud. That means that you're paying attention. Christ died in vain if we have to go and observe the law in any way, shape, or form. Life oh, and we're right on time. Do you consider yourself a child of God with full rights as a son? If you are still attempting to please him through works of the law, guess what? You are mistaken. Trust in Christ's fulfillment of the law and live by faith in the Son of God. And that's where we can end today with just marvelous words. I'm telling you, it's just what God has done. It, I, I love the book of Galatians. And I was thinking about it today. After we finish this book, instead of going on to the next book, we'll just start Galatians again. How's that? <laughs> Okay, we won't. It's, it's recorded, so we don't have to. But what a wonderful book this is. All right, let me put this down. Here we go. Heavenly Father, thank you so very much for the wonderful words of release, which are repeated again and again and again in your word, showing us that Christ did for us what we could not do for ourselves. Indeed, what an entire nation of people failed to do and who are still failing to do. And Lord, we certainly pray for the people of Israel. We know what's coming. We know what Zechariah says about the numbers which are going to be obliterated because of their reliance on something other than you and what you've done in your son, Jesus. So we pray for them. We pray that those whose hearts can be turned will be turned now so that they can be taken out before that terrible time comes. We pray for it, Lord. We pray that uh, people around the world will continue to hear the good word of Jesus Christ and come to a saving faith in him. We thank you for our missionaries overseas. Right now I'm thinking of Ray and Jess in Papua New Guinea having given away their lives for the sake of the gospel. And there they are ministering to people on another part of the planet, learning their language and, and doing these things because they love you and they love who you are and what you did for them. 
And Lord, help us to have that attitude all the days of our life, glorifying you with these lives and leading them in a way which will be honoring to you. We pray this, that you will be glorified, and we certainly pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, break. I've got to push the right button this time.